chapter 1. Uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, we looked at the first half of Paul's introduction. And so for the afternoon, this message is entitled, The Bad News First. A uh, little bit, a couple weeks ago, we looked at some of the good news, the reasons why we should be sharing the gospel with people. But after Paul introduces himself, establishes his credibility, he immediately jumps into the bad news. We generally think uh, there's lots of news to tell. Do we say the good news first, or do we talk about the bad news? When you give the good news first, and then you give the bad, any element of good that you just shared is immediately cut down by the bad news. You can never truly appreciate the good news where you're all excited, and then you just get depressed after bad news. So Paul understands this concept very well, and he, as he's writing to the Romans, immediately jumps in with the bad news first. When we're trying to show contrast, whether it's PowerPoint presentations or anything, trying to show a contrast of color or just any kind of differences, with presentations especially, but also looking at an example of when you go to look at rings, you see this black velvet underneath of the ring. So that when you go to look at the rings, if it were against a white backdrop, a beautiful diamond ring, it'd still look wonderful. Ladies, you'd still love the diamond and say, yes, I'll have that one. But when you look at it on a white backdrop, it doesn't necessarily have the same glow because it's up against a like backdrop. But when you see it against a black velvet color underneath, the same diamond, which hasn't changed in any way, is suddenly more reflective because it's up against a black backdrop showing the, the pureness of the diamond, just showing all of its good qualities that much more. So much like what Paul does here, he sets the scene writing to the Romans, giving them this black backdrop of the bad news first before he can show the diamond, which is the gospel. So open, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 32. I'm hoping not to take up too much time, but that's not always been my strongest suit. There's some heads saying, yes, please. But again, I get going and I just think it's so good and I just want to hear myself. So if that's happening, get up and start to leave and I'll just continue without you, I suppose. Thank you, Paisley. So this morning we're going to look at three ways that we prove and show our unrighteousness. This whole section of verses focuses on man proving his unrighteousness and God's wrath being shown against it. Um, But before we begin, let's just open with some prayer. Pray that God would uh, bless our time. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for the very powerful and convicting message that we heard this morning. God, just thank you for giving us your word, a way that we can just consistently look back into the scripture and see how we can follow um, the steps of your son. Lord, thank you for clearly giving us all of this information that we don't have to guess and wonder, but that you've given it to us so plainly. This afternoon, I just pray that you would give us the, the ears to hear what it is that you would have for us. And again, we just pray that you would bless this time, and we just pray that it would be profitable. Amen. So starting in verse 18, let's begin reading. We're going to look again at three ways that we're going to prove our unrighteousness to God. We do it through our rejection of Him, our replacement, 
and our rebellion of God. Starting reading in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Immediately we see this black backdrop that I mentioned before. It's very clear. When you're starting off with the wrath of God against unrighteousness, my first question is, how do I avoid that? Uh, when we look back at the Old Testament, we see plenty of times where God has shown his wrath. And I think many of us, if we know many of those stories, would say, I'd like to be a part of something other than that. Look at Noah and the flood. Let me be on the boat. I'd prefer to be on the boat than not in the boat. You know, there's constantly these examples of God's wrath against unrighteous men. So when we read something so pointed and so strong from Paul, saying God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all of this ungodliness, all of this unrighteousness, it's important that we look and see what exactly those things are. At the end of verse 18, Paul it says, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. This literally means men who suppress the truth. They not only know and acknowledge the truth, but they reject it and then physically hold it down. Um, much like children, they know what they're supposed to do. They know what the parents have told them and they know that it's right. But yet oftentimes they choose to do something completely different. I'm learning this more and more as my son gets older gets a little bit of an attitude, which at times is adorable, and I'm trying not to laugh, because I know I should be teaching him, but it's so cute when he does these faces, and I'm still very young, and I'm not quite, uh, I don't know, parenting veteran at this point, but that's all right, and instead I just wrestle with him, and we fight, and work it out, but this is a literal holding down of the truth that Unrighteous men, they receive the truth of God and they not only reject it for themselves, but they physically and in reality hold the truth down. They suppress it from other people. So there's a conscious and willful act to suppress the truth from other people. It's one thing for us to receive information and say, well, I don't believe in that. I'm just going to get rid of it. But not only to do that, to then keep others from the same thing. The song, This Little Light of Mine, um, the idea of hiding it under a bushel. No! Really thought some of you would have been on that one. Yeah, at least Maverick could have been there with no. Sorry, buddy. Uh, but a an actual holding down of the truth, they suppress this truth. And as we look, we're going to continue to see a downward spiral, a deepening effect of what this unrighteousness does. Moving down to verse 19, it says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. These two verses tell us that God is evident to all men since the beginning of creation until forever attributes of God, the knowledge of a God, of a creator, is out there. This is general revelation, which is not enough to save someone, but it is enough to condemn. Everywhere throughout the world, we think of people, the common example of what about the person in deepest, darkest corner of Africa that's never heard 
of who Jesus is or who God is. But these verses tell you that no matter where you are, from the creation of the world until the end of time, the truth of, of a creator, of God, is shown to everyone at the end of verse 20. So they're without excuse. We think, well, this person never really had the, the choice. They never had the opportunity to know that there is a God. But clearly when we look at the scripture, and again, this isn't most of this afternoon isn't a pretty picture. Again, this is the bad news. I'm not going to try to convince you, this is such good news, guys. God's wrath, boom, right on us, good news. This is the bad news, but to truly, again, understand the good news, we have to understand what it is that we're coming from. Often when you tell someone that, uh, they need a savior. Well, you have to explain to them what they're being saved from. Many people who've never heard the gospel, they say, why do I need a savior? I'm a good person. What do I need saved from? It's a very logical question. But when we look through these verses, we're going to very clearly see what it is that we're needing to be saved from and that only Christ could do it. So we see at the end of verse 20 that no one has an excuse to not acknowledge God. Every individual that's ever been born has been able to see who God is. There's no excuse. God makes it very clear where he is. He's always made it very easy to find himself. Flip over to 1 Kings chapter 19. We see a story of Elijah. This is where he's run off and he's hiding in a cave and he's searching for God and Chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. Again, Elijah's looking for God. Starting in verse 11, it says, And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? I love that little section and that little part of the story because you see all these tremendous acts that we would commonly look for God in an earthquake, a fire, a strong wind, these mighty shows of strength. But where did Elijah find God? In a still, small voice. You know, a lot of times we look for where we can find God in all these big things, saying, I'm praying for God to do a mighty work, a big thing, and then we can see Him. But a lot of us, we can just look at our lives and see different circumstances, something so simple and you see that God was in there the whole time. His provision is throughout everything. It's not just in a big wind or a fire or an earthquake. He's made it very easy to find himself, but we're the ones that make it so difficult. So when we see this rejection of God, this first section, we see we show our unrighteousness through rejecting God. But we generally, after you reject God, what do you have? Well, now you have a void. So then we tend to fill it with something. And that's the second way that we show our unrighteousness, and that's through our replacement of God. Verses 21 through 23 show that replacement. Let's begin reading in verse 21. 
It says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. It's pretty clear what it is that we replace God with, because we have a very limited number of options. As men who are created, we don't have the privilege of actually being creators, because we are created beings. We cannot actually create anything. In youth group a couple weeks ago, I asked the question to everybody, hey, how many of you guys have ever created something? And hands flying up everywhere. So after they were really proud of themselves for creating things, I said, that's not true. You've never created anything. For me personally, even if you stretch the definition of creation, I've still never created anything. I'm not very talented, okay? I blame my father, and that's my excuse. So... God is the creator. He's the only one who's created something. Because to create means from nothing, now something. All we can do is manipulate what it is that we have been given. We cannot truly create anything. So at the end of verse 23, we see what it is that we replace God with. Images made to be like us. Like birds, like four-footed creatures. Anything that we see. We make these idols. A lot of times we look at idolatry and we say, oh, idolatry, let's go to Exodus or Deuteronomy and let's just go all throughout the Old Testament looking for idols. But you can also look in the New Testament and see the Pharisees. Their Jewish laws, which were not from the Scripture, that's just as much an idol as anything else. Idols today are so prevalent, and I think it's actually worse now with idolatry because we like to tell ourselves that it's not an idol. At least when we look at the Old Testament, we see people building these golden calves right after God does a miracle for them, which blows my mind every time. <laughs> like it, They didn't really wait that long before they built something. I just gets me every time. But they built these things knowing it was an idol. They weren't lying about it. Said, well, Moses has been gone for a while. Uh, let's, all this gold we carry, let's go ahead and build something with it and worship that. But now, what do we do? We don't build things to just worship them. We take these things that are available to us, and we lie to ourselves saying, well, that's not an idol, that's just something I enjoy. For many of us, who knows what it is? Some of us, it can be something as simple as free time. Well, I love worshiping God and doing these things, but I think he would want me to have my free time where I can just do whatever I want to do for a while. So while for some of us it can be movies, uh, for me very easily was sports and just playing. I like to play. I don't know. I'm still very much a kid inside, so I'm okay with it. But sports and just playing was so much of an idol for me. But for some of us, again, it could just be free time. For some of us, it could even be sleep. Things that aren't inherently bad, but when that takes place, of what it is that God would have for us, it so easily elevates to the point of that being our most important thing. What do you look forward to in a day? Do you look forward to a prayer meeting all day, saying, I can't wait to go to a prayer meeting where we can mutually benefit from just worshiping God and praying together? Or is it after prayer meeting, Village Inn has pie? 
for free. If you didn't know about that, you're welcome. But again, be cautious not to make it an idol. Be thankful, but always have the perspective. So we see that we reject God, and then we replace Him. The third, and this is where it starts to get much worse, and there's going to be a much stronger catalog, necessarily, where if at this point you're saying, well, I wouldn't say I've rejected God, I wouldn't say I've really replaced Him. Let's now look at the third way that we all show our unrighteousness, and that's through our rebellion. If we look back to our childhood, for some of us, we'd say, yeah, when I was a kid, and I'm far different now as an adult, but when I was a kid, I rebelled. Everyone goes through this time of rebellion. For some, it's diff- it looks different than others. But we've all rebelled against an authority at some point. Okay? I promise. All of us have done it at some point. And so we see this after you reject God and you replace Him. Well, now you've not only said God's not there, you've replaced Him with something that's not true. And then everything that you do is now based on the truth that you've suppressed. Starting in verse 24, we're going to go ahead and look at some of the ways that we've rebelled against God. In verse 24 it says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. At the beginning of 24, and we're going to see very similar phrasing throughout every couple of verses, the term where it says, God gave them up. This is the same term that's used for handing a prisoner over to a sentence. Uh, I love a lot of times how Paul is very strong in his language. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't dance around. He's saying, God gave them up. So you see a literal picture of God giving them up to their passions where it's, okay, sinfulness, everything that they want over here, and God's placing them and saying, this is what you've chosen very actively. You've rejected me, you've replaced me, and you're rebelling. That's what you want. And he's handing them over. He's literally giving them over for their punishment. Same idea of a prisoner for a sentence where they've already done the act and now they're simply being punished for something. So you see this consistent wording all the way through from verses 24 to 32 of God giving them up. And in 24, at the be- towards the beginning of verse 24, this uncleanness, it's of impurities, which literally talks about decaying matter. So that's not a pretty picture, things decaying. Uh, many of you, if you walk around your yard, you'll probably find things decaying. Okay, that's how things work. So this death, it's creating such a very clear picture that these things lead to death, decaying matter, impurity, handing over for a sentence. These are all things that none of us would say, yeah, I want to sign up for these things, but yet we so frequently do that which leads us to this. Moving on through 26 through 27, we're going to continue seeing what God gives men up to. It says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust toward one another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves the recompense for the error which was met, which was meet. So we see the picture of God 
of clearly this outlining of men with men, women with women, where now it's so common for churches to attack homosexuals, and you see this, and this is one thing that churches have very poor, have poorly reacted to throughout time. And this isn't the main focus of the passage, so I'm not going to spend much time here because this isn't the text for it. But you see Paul quickly highlighting, hey, this is wrong. And we see it's wrong because this isn't the way that God had originally ordained the relationship. Any time that we take something that God's given us and we pervert it and use it in a way that's not ordained, we see that that's wrong. So we harp on, se- on homosexuality a ton because it's very easy for us to point to and say, well, that's wrong, and it's very clear. But as we're going to see later, there are things which are far worse, which are far more matters of the heart than just an outward expression. And Paul finishes with this so that you can't, you can't just sit in verse 26, 27, 28 and say, look, this is wrong, this is one of the worst things. Because if this was the worst thing that men could do, There wouldn't be anything after it. There wouldn't be something worse. Paul highlights it and continues to move on, but we like to sit on it because it's easy to point to. Verse 28 says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. Again, you're seeing this picture. God giving them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers. Let's just keep going. This is a great catalog. Let's keep reading. Backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Some of you love that one. Saying, yes, I can say, look, this is wrong for you guys to disobey me. My son doesn't understand that quite yet. He will, I promise. But you look and you're saying, okay, you're up through verse 27, 28. You're saying, haven't rejected God, haven't replaced him. This is all good. Well, look at verse 29 and 30 and honestly examine yourself and say, am I on this list, this catalog of sins where we continuously prove our unrighteousness? You look through it and say, all right, well, I don't really covet not malicious, not really much uh, envy, haven't murdered anyone, which obviously encourage you to keep that up. Uh, debate, no. Deceit, no. Okay, well, what about whisperers? Do we like to gossip a lot? There's so many things in here that we like to tell ourselves that we're doing fine and we're great. Uh, Pastor Ben this morning said we like to come in for the hour or so that we're at church and put on a good face and say, hey, we're doing great. Things are awesome and it's great. But then when we actually examine ourselves, which we're repeatedly told to do, examine ourselves and see where we are in the faith, we have to look at these things and consider these equally as bad as any other sin that it is that we can easily point to. Some of these things, many people may not even know. Someone who's living a homosexual lifestyle and everyone knows it, you can easily say, hey, they're doing that and that's wrong. All right, but I'm not doing that. Well, but are you talking about that in a way that you shouldn't? Are you gossiping about it? Are you doing all of these other things? And for me, when I had to look through this, it's an incredibly convicting passage because 
it's always incredible how the Bible kind of encompasses everybody all the time. Uh, there's times I'd like to read it and say, oh, sweet, I'm not on that list. But you can always find yourself in there because we're all fallen, we're all sinful. And Paul makes the point not to assume that everyone in this church in Rome, which had a decent reputation, he didn't assume that all of them were only living for God because idolatry is everywhere. People rejecting God everywhere. Replacing Him everywhere. Rebelling everywhere. At the close, from verse 31 to 32, he ends up adding something that If you still haven't found yourself, maybe you will at the end of 32. Starting in verse 31, it says, Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, and this is the part, this 32 is one that just added a little bit more of a nugget that I just found incredibly fascinating. Who knowing the judgment of God, and this is the wrath that we we were talking about earlier, they which, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So even those of us who would say that, well, I, I don't have an issue with many of these things, and that's great. If that's something that we can honestly say, that is incredible, because God covering us in grace has given you the strength to do something that many of us are still working through. So while we ourselves may not be actively involved in something, at the end of 32 it says those that not only do the same, but they also have pleasure in those that do them. So ones that condone it, that don't have a problem with someone else doing something. So while we might say, well, that's not something that I would personally do, but I'm okay with someone else doing that. We still see that that is a problem that that's the way that we show our unrighteousness. And as we continue to do that, to continue to show our unrighteousness, we show that we are justly worthy of this wrath of God. So as Paul gives this right after his introduction, which his introduction is incredibly encouraging, he gives a brief gospel message, gives credibility saying, hey, I want to come visit you guys so we can benefit and we can grow together. But then he gives this dark backdrop. I want to note that this isn't a backdrop that God himself created. He didn't create us to desire these things. He created us desiring him. But it's our own actions and our own effect that we've reached this point now that everything else that we see is necessary. It's necessary that Jesus had to come and die because we continuously show our unrighteousness. We take that which God has given us And we reject it, we replace it, and we rebel against everything that God's given us. It's our natural reaction. When we look at why why do we respond the way that we do, it's because that's what we've given our heart control of. Sinful reaction comes from a sinful heart. We talk about, uh, we look in James 3, talk about the tongue, but everything from the tongue is an outflow of the heart. So if you have a deceitful heart, tongue's going to be the same. It's all very simple. Everything just kind of works its way up. Okay, Some of you who know a lot about body and science and everything, you'll know this better than me. We're not going to talk about that too much. But you see how everything comes from the inside. And as we get through this passage, as you go towards the end, you see a downward spiral where 
First it affected the head, you attain the knowledge of God, and you reject it. Boom, now it's rejected. Then it moves to the hands. You're suppressing it. You're building these idols. You're taking other things, and now you are worshiping a creature rather than the creator. So now it's down to my hands. Now we're working down. And then finally it gets to your heart where people are acting out these things, but starting in verse 28 and 29, this catalog of sins, they're all from the heart. So sin doesn't just stay in your head. It doesn't just stay in your hands or your feet. It always tries to penetrate the heart because if it can take over your heart, it will control you. And I think I'm so thankful that Paul spends the time to outline this depth of sin because I think if we truly understood the depth of our sin and what it does every time that we do and God's reaction to it, I think if we truly understood it, then we'd be much more likely to refrain from doing a lot of the things that we do. Because we don't always just see the effects that our sin has. Every time we sin, it grieves the Father. It, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Every time that we continue to live in sin, we're slapping Jesus in the face for His sacrifice. These are all things that we would all consciously say, well, I would never do that. But we always have to look at ourselves and our actions and say, and this is kind of interesting because it's kind of what Pastor Ben was talking about this morning. Like, am I actually living in a way that reflects this? I can say that I wouldn't, but am I living that way? Am I following his steps? You know, Jesus didn't do the things that are on this list. That's why he was the one that had to come and die. So we see this picture of the bad news, but again, I'm thankful that it doesn't end there. Paul then talks about how we're justified through faith, that we're made righteous through the blood of Christ. He gives the good news. He doesn't say we're drowning and then not tell you how to get out of a pool. He says we're drowning and we're dying, but there's still hope. God's given us this hope through His Son. And the part that always gets me, and Pastor Ben mentioned this again, he stole all of my points. All of them. But I think we, we used a common source, so that's kind of neat. Um, but we see in Romans 5 that he died while we, were, while we were still sinners. He didn't say, hey, these are the unrighteous things you're doing. Fix that, then I'll send my son. Again, I was telling the youth, look, Jesus already died. This has already happened. The sacrifice has already been paid. Everything's already done. So for you to try to make yourself better before you come to him, it's pointless. There's, there's no reason to. That's why Jesus had to die, because we can't do it ourselves. So it's already been done. All we have to do is respond in obedience. And as opposed to rejecting, we're supposed to accept the truth of who God is. Instead of suppressing it, you believe it. And like we talked about a couple weeks ago, you share that with everybody else. So this may not have been the most encouraging, like happy rainbow message, just because we're, but just because we're seeing this picture of our sin. But again... This is all something that we've caused. And I think we have to truly understand the depth of it. A lot of times we like to only preach the texts that are very much encouraging and just get you revved up and ready to go out and share. But one, we have to know why this is necessary. And if people say, what do I need to be saved from? We can clearly tell them. Because we're all saved from the same thing, guys. Every one of us is saved from the same thing. 
and we're all saved to Christ. So as opposed to rejecting and replacing and rebelling against God, the answer is simple, like most things, but yet very hard to practice. You accept God as being true. You accept the revelation he's given us. We worship him because he's the creator. We're the creature. A lot of times we flip that. He created us. A lot of times we tend to worship a painting like the Mona Lisa, and then you try to remember, well, who painted that thing? And if you're a painter, Cassandra, that probably would irritate you. Like, but I did. Maybe painters aren't like that. I don't know. I would be irritated. Because, again, I've never created anything, so I don't really know what that's like. But you worship the creator rather than the creature. And we're supposed to be consistently living in obedience. So we see a black, a dark backdrop, but it's up against this gem, this diamond of the hope of the gospel. And if we were only told of the good things, we wouldn't truly appreciate that good news. Lord, just thank you again for this picture that you've given us, God. We just thank you that it's so so clear that you've given us this, this book, this, this word that you're able to consistently tell us the things that you want us to know, that we're able to always look back when we have questions. We have somewhere we can go to. Lord, we thank you for the hope that you've given us that you didn't just leave us in death, which we deserve, but you've given us a new life. And we thank you that you allowed Paul to show us this reality of our sin, Lord, that we understand what it is that you're saving us from so that we can truly appreciate you in the right way. Lord, I pray that for all of us we'd be able to look to you, that we'd be able to accept the truth of who you are, that we wouldn't replace you with anything, God. Anytime we've ever tried to replace you with something, the things that we run to when we're in despair, when we're feeling hurt, we know how that's always worked out. There might be pleasure for a season, but it always brings us death and more hurt. But we pray that we'd be able to come to you in those times that we wouldn't replace you. As we go from here, Lord, help us to have the boldness to encourage one another, but also the boldness to put off those things that we may desire, that we wouldn't be given over to our desires, Lord. Our punishment is ironically giving us what it is that we want. Lord, thank you for giving us an alternative through your Son. Just be with us as we go from here. Help us to be encouraged by the hope that you've given us. It's in your name. Amen.